0: So, então... yeah.
1: I'll just start then. Ooh, nice and cool in here. That's a relief. That's nice. Offering in the offering box, of course. I've got mine in my pocket. <laughs> Still contact Andrea for prayer chain. Update on the Luke family. I didn't have heard anything for several days, so... Yeah. We've had it in our extended family this past couple weeks, too, and it's it's so odd how, you know, husband and wife, they, they both got it, one pretty sick, and the other one, a couple days, and kind of threw it in the kids, sniffles,
2: you know. yeah,
1: good, great, good news. Okay, um, Days of Praise, and Acts and Facts, of course, are here, make use of those, and, uh. I would say, don't let them sit around. Take them and use them. Pass them on, uh, Other than our update, anything else? Phil's going to give us a little, little update on the building project. We haven't heard. We have, haven't heard any more from Tom Raw. He was waiting for his biopsy. Yeah. Okay. The young man that we were praying for that's For, for meditation this morning is a, uh, a response. I'm sorry, it's not a response. reading. I'm on the one, wrong. I'm on the wrong date It is found in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Read verses 11 through 16. And I don't have the page number, but y'all know where Hebrews is. So. Somewhere towards the back. Stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. Billy, you want to open for
3: us? Father in heaven, we come before you this hour. We come with a gladness in heart that we understand and know full well what salvation means to us in this world of sin. That you, O oh Lord, have dragged us from the pit of despair and death and hopelessness and set us on a righteous path to glory. We thank you Father for your intercession in our lives and pray Lord that the pastor brings forth a message that would convict the heart of the lost but firm and strengthen the heart of those that you have deigned to save. Be with our nation this hour Lord because we are grieving and we are unsure of the daily routine. Even though we Are unsure, Lord, we know that you are sure, you are in control. All things have come to us, first passed through your fingers. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit communes with us this hour. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Amen. For the, the first hymn, uh, just a brief update on the portico. Uh, the trusses are on the way, there's, there's a lead time uh, and because of the way the economy is, that lead time has been stretched out from four weeks to a minimum six weeks. So we're about a week or two away, perhaps, unless something happens, we can get them sooner. Most of the lumber you see there for, for wrapping the girders, setting up for the trim, and reinforcing. So we're on, we're on pace, and if, once the trusses get in, Chris can set them in place, get everything go, get the tin up, and his, his part will be completely done. Uh, the remainder will be left to, to the church to install the trim and, and do the flat work, which is the cement. Um, any questions? about the, the portico come to mind? Dale, am I, am I right in what uh, I just said? Have you, you've talked to Chris and he said maybe a couple more weeks, correct, on the trusses? Yeah. Yes, or it's not fun. Okay, very
0: good. You were supposed to, uh, <clears throat>
3: So get that squared away. So. Okay. What's the first rule of singing a cappella? Can anybody recite it back to me? No.
1: Sing louder than
0: you.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> Everyone, you're all on pace today, so very good. Um, 347 in the hymnal. And please be thinking about a, a song that everybody can sing for our, uh, congregational. I've got to get to it. Be still my soul. <coughs> Ready? Yeah. Be
4: still my soul. The Lord is on my side. Bear patiently Camp along the hills of light. <coughs> Pardon me? In encamped in along the
2: hills of light Christian soldiers rise and press the battle where the night shall veil
4: the glowing skies Against the foam and veils below. of light, our, our hearts, hearts with love.
1: Chapter. We'll be reading 1 through 16. If you'll stand with me, or we'll read together. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. (coughs) When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your (coughs) arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai (coughs) said, mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now a child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. The Lord, For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, "I have now seen the one who sees me." That is why, I, that is why, that is why the well is called Beer Lahav. It is also there, still there, between Kadesh and Beer. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne him. Abram was eighty-six <coughs> years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael that the Lord would read. Bless the reading of this. Dale.
3: What
0: would
3: you like? Seventy-two. I think a good choice in, in the advent of these these past few days. <coughs>
2: Our text of scripture this morning is found in Genesis 16. We're in a series on the patriarchs. We have learned that God made a promise to Abram way back in Genesis 12. Concerning the covenant that he was going to make. But that covenant was not ratified until chapter 15. The promise God made to Abram and Sarah included not only an heir, but also land. I mean, if God was to make Abram into a great nation, think about this, they needed land on which to farm and raise livestock. This is an agrarian society, not a manufacturing society. So, guess what? They're all farmers <laughs> or livestock, uh, ranchers, that type of thing, shepherds, whatever, it has to do with ranching. They needed land on which to farm and on which to raise their livestock. You know that men go to war over land acquisitions. But God just granted Abram the territory from the Nile to the Euphrates tremendous tract of land, all of which was possessed at one time in history under Solomon. And we discovered how seriously God considered this covenant promise when we learned that Oriental covenants were ratified in blood, that is the sacrifice of an innocent animal quartered, placed in a row opposite each other, the pieces, forming an aisleway way down which the parties entering into agreement would walk. And in so doing, they are by pledged their own lives to comply with their part of the agreement. Well, with Abraham, the unique thing happened. God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And he's found sleeping under a tree. And God ratified the covenant Unilaterally, that is, with Abraham out of the picture. Quite unique. What was going on? Well, God was pledging Himself to satisfy all the conditions of the covenant without Abram's help. He would become a recipient of the blessings. Of that contract, that's true, but he was not to be a participant in meeting those conditions. I wish our Arminian brethren would understand way back when this was done concerning salvation. Maybe they wouldn't boast so much, but I had to believe, but I had to believe, but I had to believe. Abraham isn't believing, he's sleeping. And God is doing the work of making the covenant reality. So we find that the covenant was eternal. Time was not to be a governing factor. The covenant was to be for all time with no expiration date. And thirdly, the covenant was of pure grace. Pure grace. It was a gift from God. Just boom, like that. Now, we learned that all three of these characteristics, that it was unilateral covenant, a work of God, that it was eternal, a paternal promise, and that it was one of pure grace, a gift, not earned through works, characterizes God's salvation for his people. That's the spiritual side of the covenant. Well, I want to do it today, to look at Sarah's solution to her barrenness important study and she is intricately related to it all so as we come to this study let's ask the lord to enable us to hear and to believe lord we thank you for the truth of your word and we would pray that it would be the uh, sword that it is that it would cut into our hearts and would bring conviction and would bring hope and peace in the restoration of our faith. We see that Sarah here in this study has a vital part in this covenant. Being a woman, she is not excluded. She is not excluded. She is incorporated in a very intimate way. And I pray, Lord, that this will be an encouragement to our ladies, but also to us men, to see that both husband and wife are Well, they're one in Christ when when they are in Christ. And they each have a role and a responsibility in Christ. And we praise you for that. Sometimes we have mixed marriages where we don't have but one believer. But, Lord, we're praying for unity. And we're praying that you will bring salvation to both in a marriage so that there can be a real partnership. Bless the truth of your word we look at our congregation today see a lot of absent pews because uh, covid has taken its toll and there's a lot of sick people so we pray for them that you will intervene we thank you for the internet and the ability to uh, stream our services to our people we pray that wherever they are at home or uh, wherever that you will bless them give them the uh ability to be able to log in and catch us on the, on, the, on the internet and we'll thank you for what you're going to do thank you for the uh, technology in Christ's name amen We're looking at Sarah's solution when God said that to her to Abraham that they this couple would have a child, through which the promises would come that he had made. But they didn't come quick enough for Sarah. So what we find, first of all, here is that there is impatience on Sarah's part. Verse 1 brings us again the repeated acknowledgement that Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and for the obvious reason that she was barren. This is very true. But as what is equally true was that Sarah, along with her husband, was promised by God to become the mother of nations. He, the father of nations. I'm pluralizing the word. Nations. She, the mother of nations. Also plural. So, Genesis 12, verse 2 says... I will make you into a great nation. That was said to Abram when he was 75 years old. Translation, while you're not a great nation yet, but you will become a great nation. And though initially the Canaanites lived in the land, chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. I mean, God has to start somewhere. There's people living in this land. So God says to Abraham, I I want you to know that I'm going to give you this land. In Genesis 13, verse 15, after the parting of Lot, his nephew, God told Abraham to scope out the land in every direction of the compass. And then he said to him, and let me read it for you, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Genesis 15 Abram again broached the subject of his being childless, saying, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is this Eliezer of Damascus. You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Eliezer was this servant that Abraham was holding out to God as... Well, I haven't had any children, so I guess Eliezer's it. Well, <laughs> God quickly shut that proposal down, saying, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. But both Abram and Sarah had become impatient about not having an heir. Although God repeatedly had told them both that nations, plural, people, were in the making within them. Repeated references were made Concerning their offspring. Their offspring? Really? (laughs) Children from a childless couple? Have you ever thought of that? An astronomical number was given to them if they could count the stars. Oh, and a geophysical number was given them if they could count the dust particles of the earth. So, either way you look at it, look at the stars. That's how many children. Look at the dust, if you can count that. Look up, look down, but trust, believe. Now these statements, uh, look at the stars, look at the dust, they are in uh, language, hyperboles, which are not to be taken literally, but they are an exaggeration in speech to make a point. Okay, what's the point? It is this. Abraham, Sarah, will have so many descendants that they cannot be counted. That's the point. But the years have been clicking by. Abraham is no longer 75. Sarah is no longer 65. Chapter 17, Abraham is said to be 99 years old. So in chapter 16, Abraham is younger, as is Sarah. But any way you look at it, the biological clock is ticking. And so both Abraham and Sarah were looking for ways to understand God's promise, short of denying the promise But not fully grasping the nature of it either. Wow, we're getting older here, God. I can just hear him, you know. (laughs) The clock's ticking. We thought, we thought by now we would have this child that you promised us. All we see going on is the years clicking by, and we're getting older and more gray and more decrepit in our abilities including our procreation he's 99 sarah is 90 for ways to understand god fully is going to require a strong stretch of faith so Abraham proposes another solution. What about Eleazar, my serpent, becoming the heir of my estate? He's a good guy if he's been around a long time. Why can't we have him become my heir? Kind of like my surrogate son. But God said, no. No, no. Sarah's solution was, what about Hagar, my Egyptian maidservant? Why don't you go sleep with my maidservant? Perhaps I can build a family through her, verse 2. Now that seems very strange to us. What woman, what wife, in her right mind, is going to say to her husband, I can't have children, but there's this woman in our house... She comes in and cleans the furniture and does the laundry and washes the windows and does all of that. Why don't you sleep with her and then her child will be called my child because she's my servant and I'm giving my servant to you so any children she has will be considered my children. These seems very strange to us because in our society no woman would do this. No one. But it was the cultural protocol in Abraham's day. Men were permitted to have multiple wives in these days, and any children born to the lesser wife, in this case Hagar, would be counted as much of Abram's legal offspring as if Sarah had borne them. Classic example of this is Jacob's children. I'm pushing the history here a little. Jacob's children born to Leah's maidservant and to Rachel's maidservant. You know the story. Rachel being barren from the get-go, Leah becoming barren in later life, both these women gave their maidservants to Jacob as wives, and all the offspring were counted as Jacob's sons. That's how he comes up with 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. These Extra children were heads of the 12 clans over Israel. Just as much sons, just as much heirs, as if Rachel and Leah had borne the children themselves. But the problem we need to see here in Abraham and Sarah is their impatience as they wait for God's solution. By this time in life, they're old and they're gray. Abram's reproductive powers are practically extinct. And Sarah's never were. Remember? She was barren. Have you ever become kind of time weary as you wait for God to keep his promises to you? I have. As we moms and dads see our children or our grandchildren grow into adulthood and we have prayed for their salvation, believing that rebirth is more important than even natural birth, we may begin to grasp at straws at any and everything to assure us that our grandkids will be or are already the children of God. We're in a rush. But there's no rush with God. We want answers for our prayers right now. Not later, but right now. But God doesn't work on the basis of our schedule. He works on the basis of his. So Solomon admonishes us all. Here's what he says in Proverbs 16, 32. Better a patient man than a warrior. A man which controls his temper than one who takes a sitting. Proverbs 16, 32. What's he saying? Well, he's giving us a clue here as to the nature of impatience. Impatience is a form of anger or temper. Abraham and Sarah were frustrated with God. Why was it taking so long to keep his promise? Why the delay? What impediment must God remove to accomplish His will? He's God. Let's get on with it. Has He promised us a son or not? Tick-tock, tick-tock, one year, then two years. Tick-tock, tick-tock, then a whole decade, ten years passes by. Where's our baby? Where's our heir? Well, Sarah has a solution. You need to conceive with Hagar. That was fueled by impatience. She, not to mention Abram, was tired of waiting. I mean, God's plan just, let's face it, was too slow. Ten years, that is a long time to wait for God to keep his promise. We aren't getting any younger here. Sarah's solution was implemented by human ingenuity and that's not any better. Sarah thought, well, I have a maidservant. Her name is Hagar. Legally, I mean, (laughs) legally, her children are my children. I will marry her off to Abraham as a second wife. And verse 2, build a family through her. Wow, that's a good plan. And verse 2 says Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. Verse 3, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, now he's 85 years old, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. So, God's promise of a son for Abraham and Sarah was delayed in coming and with with that delay we begin to figure out ways in which they think they can help God help them. You ever thought that way? Boy, God's taken a long time to do what I'm asking for, what I'm praying for. We may downplay the power of God or the timing of God or maybe blame ourselves for misunderstanding the promises of God. We begin planning our work and working out the plan. To make us feel like God has intervened in a real and personal way to keep his word to us. And we feel good that we're finally doing something instead of sitting around the house moping because God's promise to us hasn't yet materialized. So I ask this question, does God need our help to keep his promises to us? Or do we need to work on being patient, trusting, obedient? Well, eventually both Abram and Sarah come to this reality, but it wasn't easy. The man of faith had his faith tested, and the man of faith had to be brought to an end of himself along with Sarah. I want you to observe that each time Moses references Hagar in this narrative he identifies her as the Egyptian verse 1 verse 4 the Egyptian how did this egyptian come to play such a vital role in Abraham and Sarah's life Genesis 12:10 says that there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live There for a while because the famine was severe. It was while there in Egypt that Abram convinced Sarah to lie for him. Saying to Pharaoh's servants that she was Abram's sister. And you recall that Pharaoh was about to take Sarah as his own wife. But God inflicted, I'm reading scripture. God inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. Because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Genesis 12 verse 17. And Abram was kicked out of Egypt in disgrace for his deception. Well, Hagar was part of Sarah's acquisition while in Egypt. Verse 6 tells us that when Sarah complained to Abram because pregnant Hera now despised her, Abram answered, Your servant is in your own hands. Do with whatever you think is best. I can see him doing this. Don't blame me. You're the one that gave her to me as a wife. Now that she's pregnant, you despise me for having brought this all about. Nothing good comes out of Egypt, not ever. <laughs> Egypt is representative of the world. For the Israelites, a place of bondage, a place of servitude. Did anything ever good come out of Egypt? No, <laughs> never. Now God turned some things around for his wayward people. Remember Joseph sold into Egyptian slavery by his own brothers and he and his father in time, in time of severe famine were brought into great power and authority when God elevated Joseph to be vice-regent of all of Egypt. And Joseph was able to use his position to preserve his family from extinction. That was good. But Egypt of itself was populated by idol worshipers and its monarch Pharaoh said to Moses, I'm going to quote him now. This is Pharaoh talking to Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5, verse 2. I do not know the Lord. No truer confession was ever made. Wow. Jeremiah gave this lament in his book. This is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. Announce this in in Egypt. Proclaim it at Midol. Proclaim it at Memphis, two cities in Egypt. Take your positions and get ready. For the sword devours those around you. Why will your warriors be laid low? They cannot stand. For the Lord will push them down. They will stumble, stumble repeatedly. They will fall over each other. They will say, "Get up! Let's go back to our own people and our own native lands." and away from the sword of the oppressor, Jeremiah 46:13 and following. Verse 18 says, As surely as I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty, pack your belongings for exile, you who live in Egypt, for Memphis will be laid waste, and lie in ruins without inhabitants. The mercenaries in her ranks are like fattened calves. They too will turn and flee together. They will not stand their ground, for the day of disaster is coming upon them, the time for them to be punished. Egypt will hiss like a fleeing serpent as the enemy advances in force. They will come against her with axes like men who cut down trees. They will chop down her forest, declares the Lord. Dense though it be, they are more numerous than locusts. They cannot be counted. The daughter of Egypt will be put to shame. Handed over to the people of the north. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Amnon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt, on her gods, on her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. Jeremiah 46, verse 18. God doesn't have much nice things to say in the scripture about Egypt. People of the world are people who rely on their own wits and ingenuity to achieve what they want to accomplish. Egypt epitomizes this. It always has a bad rep in scripture. How did Israel gain freedom and independence? Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, tells us how Israel escaped Egypt. He, God, led them out of Egypt And did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert. Acts 7, verse 36. That's how God intervened. Why then are Abram and Sarah reverting to their own ingenuity to gain an heir when God had promised a miracle son to be given them in their old age? Well their flesh has temporarily gained preeminence over their faith. But the consequences will be ongoing. I mean, think about this. Ishmael is with us today. That's the child born to Hagar. While faith exhibits itself in deeds of righteousness, it cannot be paired with works as the means whereby the blessings of God are poured out upon us the faith of both abraham and sarah was compromised on this occasion the father of the faithful wasn't very faithful nor was sarah our mother they got scared and they panicked we don't have an heir with no heir i mean how 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 could nations of people come from from them thus they both took matters into their own hands And God's promise was set on the back shelf. So that means that innocent Hagar becomes the victim of domestic persecution. Hagar, whatever else she was, was a slave. Her destiny was mapped out by, excuse me, for her, by her masters, in particular by Sarah. Hagar was not asked if she wanted to be a surrogate mother, She was not given the choice. Sarah was out to have a family and if she could not bear children on her own, she would have children through her maidservant, which was perfectly acceptable in biblical days. Sure enough, I mean, Hagar became pregnant by Abram. Verse 16 tells us that Abram was 86 at the birth of Ishmael. So it's another reminder to Sarah that The inability to produce children had to do with a biological anomaly in her. Oh, I'm the problem. Because Abraham can still produce a child, (laughs) but I can't. Abraham is reproductively viral, but I'm not. No, she never has been. We don't understand this, but this is a tremendous weight in a culture where women consider it their greatest good and worth to provide their husband with an heir. <laughs> Things have really changed, haven't they? In our culture, women think that their greatest goal is to be independent of men, have their own business, do their own thing. Well, when Hagar became pregnant, it appeared that things were working out just as Sarah had planned, but were they really? Verse 4 tells us that when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she despised her mistress, that would be Sarah. Why? Because Hagar knew she was being used. She did not have the love of Abraham, as did Sarah. She was just a convenient tool by which Sarah could become a mother, even if so by proxy. And Sarah had not counted on this backlash to her scheme. In bitterness, she complains to Abram, verse 5, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she is pregnant, she despises me. Whoa! (laughs) How did Abram catch the blame for what was essentially Sarah's decision? Well, this is not all. Look at verse 2, and note how Sarah describes her barrenness. Not, not, I am childless, which is a fact. But the Lord has kept me from having children. Which is to say, I would have had children if it weren't for the fact that God hindered me. And now she does the same thing to her husband saying, You are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. Why is this? It's nothing more than the blame game. The blame game. This is what usually occurs the moment we stop trusting God. We do the wrong. We bypass the promised mercies of God. Because they do not come as expeditiously as we had hoped, we take matters into our own hands, and then when the whole mess goes sour, we blame others, not the least of whom we blame is God himself. You did this to me. Abraham was at fault because he caved into Sarah's solution. Sarah was at fault for conceiving and executing a solution that could only be labeled disobedience to God. They're both both wrong. The only innocent party in this whole scenario was Hagar. What happened to her? Verse 6. Sarah mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. ESV says she dealt harshly with Hagar. The Hebrew here. Means to belittle. To put down. To humiliate. So Sarah is not beating her with a whip but she is tongue lashing her and whoever said that words don't, never hurt just don't know what they're talking about James says but no man can tame the tongue it's a restless evil full of deadly poison with the tongue we praise our Father and our Lord and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness out of the same mouth come praises and cursing, my brothers. This should not be. James 3, verse 8 and following. Well, if it should not be, then how come it is? James goes on, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, where you find disorder and every evil practice. James 3, 14 and following. This is Satan, and so he stirs the pot, stirs up trouble. Poor Sarah. She cannot speak peaceably of Hagar, of Abraham, nor of God. She is Naomi in later history who had lost her husband and her two sons while in the far country, you remember. So when she returned home to Bethlehem, her hometown, she said to her neighbors, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Ruth 1 verse 20. Naomi means my delight. Don't call me delightful. (laughs) Call me bitterness. Verse 21 states her thinking. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me, Naomi, pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ruth 1, verse 21. Now, in Naomi's case, this was true. Job said it best at the death of all his children. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job one twenty-one. The Lord did it, and he was right. But Sarah's bitterness finds no justification in blaming Abraham, at least of all God. Her bitterness is of her own doing. She's feeling sorry for herself, conniving to produce an heir in direct violation of God's intention for her and Abraham, taking her anger out on Hagar and on Abram. Fortunately for Hagar, verse 7, the Lord found Hagar near a spring. And sent her back to Sarah with this promise. Verse 10. I will so increase your descendants that they too will be numerous, too too numerous to count. And I think it was a moment of great enlightenment for Hagar because she says in verse 13, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the God who sees me. Ishmael, as noted earlier, means God hears. So what she's saying is, God heard my prayers, and God has seen my distress. Quite a revelation for her. She has not been deserted. She's been treated badly, but she hasn't been deserted by God. So there are some vital lessons we learn here. Number one, even faith-filled believers can act in unbelief when they grow weary of waiting for the promises of God. Let me say it again. Even faith-filled believers can act in unbelief when they grow weary of waiting for the promises of God. Even our spiritual parents, in this case, Abraham and Sarah, prove poor and unbelieving skeptics through their impatience. The best of Christian men and women will fall if you idolize them. Take your eyes off Christ and you will be sorely disappointed by discovering that your spiritual leaders have feet of clay. The beauty of God's salvation is rehearsed by David. He wrote this psalm after his adultery with Bathsheba. He writes, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. Psalm 32, verse 2 and following. It's an ode to God for his great forgiveness, even when we sin gravely. Paul's words it this way in New Testament. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, verse 20 and 21. In other words, God's grace overpowers sin's effect in believers on the merit of Jesus' sacrifice. When we fail the Lord because of opting to do something sinful, do you know that Jesus died for the failure, that failure, as well as the sin? The things we lack doing, failures. Not just the sinful things we did do. Paul words it this way. If we are faithless, he, God, will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. Second Timothy 2 verse 13. Faithfulness is what God is. So he cannot be unfaithful, then he would cease to be God. Scottish hymn writer George Matheson wrote, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thy ocean depths its flow may richer. Fuller be. O joy that seeketh me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. And I feel that the promise is not vain. That mourn shall tearless be. When the new day dawns, I will have profited from the tears. God alone can and does turn our sorrow into joy even when we sin. For his love is not conditional. His love is not conditional. The psalmist writes, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Psalm 103 verse 17 that's God secondly the best solution we contrive for our perceived problems usually ends with regrets let me say that again the best solutions we contrive for our perceived problems usually ends with regrets so you think God has forgotten you and Needs a little helping hand to carry out his promises. How'd that work out for Abraham and Sarah? They're going to help God. Hagar, a peace loving and obedient servant, became a source of resentment and anger and tension in Abraham's household. Sarah was jealous of Hagar's ability to conceive when she could not conceive. And Hagar ran away in distress, and Abraham suffered a broken home. And though Hagar returned on this occasion by God's intervention, Abraham would later send her and Ishmael away. Because the slave woman's son was persecuting Isaac, the promised son. And Sarah was determined that He should not be an heir to Abraham's blessings. And guess what? God agreed. Whoa. I'm sending her and her son away. And God agreed. Today the tentacles of the octopus, Abraham and Sarah contrived, reach through the centuries to our present day. As God explained to Hagar of Ishmael, verse 12, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Brethren, that's the Arab nations today. They are the descendants of Ishmael. And even today... This prophecy is being fulfilled. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Can you note in your life the times that your plans have backfired? I mean, you had a set outcome in mind when you mapped out your decisions, but you ran ahead of God because of impatience, or you labeled your action as God's will for your life, but you just thought it up yourself because his will never did, never was consulted. His word was denied or ignored in your decisions. Abraham and Sarah's solution to an error proved disastrous. Not only for them, but for the world. Now, maybe your decisions have not had such a far-reaching result. The world isn't affected. But they've touched you, or they've touched your family. And that's pain enough, I think, isn't it? Even then, even now, the promise of God is this. Let me read it for you. The Lord is close to the broken hearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 18 and following. Or again, Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the broken heart. He binds up their wounds. Psalm 147, the first three verses. Yeah, we have troubles. Some of the a lot of that troubles are of our own doing, our own sinfulness. So God chastises us, He spanks us. But He delivers us out of all of those troubles. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up our wounds. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. I'm glad for that. (sighs) Bad decisions I've made in life. God doesn't hold that against me, but forgives me. Restores me. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, Jesus has a promise for you. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Folks, the burden and weight of your sin is far greater and far more devastating than any burden of faith and repentance that Jesus calls you to. And for any who have fears of being rejected, it isn't your righteousness that assures acceptance, but rather God's grace. Jesus put it this way, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, verse 37. Or hear the promise of God. God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later, he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews 4, verse 7. Now today, the word today means the present day. Not yesterday as though salvation has passed you by. Not tomorrow as though God is still mm, contemplating his response. No, no, no. Today God calls you to repent of your sin and to come believing that Jesus will forgive you and will welcome you into his family. You have his word on it. Not the word of lying men, but the word of the God who cannot lie. Do you know the scripture says that about God? God cannot lie. Oh, I love that. Time to believe and obey. There are no regrets for any who heed God's call. Our Lord, we thank you for the re- reality Dear God, that our God is a truth speaker that he cannot lie, that the promises of God are amen and amen. They're sure to be followed and fulfilled. That's not like the same with men's words. Men are consistent liars. Not always because of intent, but because they don't know all the facts and they cannot control all the contingencies. So sometimes the lying has to do with the fact that they're ignorant. They think things that are untrue. And they act according to their thinking. But Lord, we thank you that you are a God whose thoughts are always righteous and true. And so your words are always righteous and true. You cannot lie. You will not lie. You have promised that if we will come to you in faith in Christ, your son who died for sinners and paid the price for sinners, if we will come in Jesus' merit and in his blood pleading faith in him, you will forgive. His blood will be effectual. It will cover our sins. We will be forgiven and brought into the family of God. I thank you for that promise. And I pray that there will be those here today that take advantage of it. In Christ's name. Amen. Pastor. Yeah.
0: I got a uh, text message from Tim and Janelle Marshall. It says, Marshalls are well. We're at a hospital with friends. Their 16-year-old is showing no brain activity. So I texted back. I said, we will pray but...
2: This is their child? Oh, that the one we've been praying for?
0: Uh, no, maybe. It could be. It might be somebody different. Maybe somebody different.
2: Okay. You want to lead us in prayer?
0: Sure.
2: You got the news there, so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. leave it to you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Which one would you want? I got two here. This one. <laughs> I don't know. Pick one. Uh, this one. Four seventy-three. What book is that? In
3: the in the Brown hymnal. Okay. Uh, Four seventy-three in the hymnal.
4: And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory.
2: Our Lord, the blood of Christ is the only thing that can cleanse us of our sin and our filth, our disobedience, our unbelief, our love for sin. And you have done that for us in Christ. So if we will trust Christ, Christ, if we will cast ourselves upon him. By the way, we're so thankful his own words is that of all that come to him, he will turn none of them away. So we can't lay that on you and say, well, he wouldn't want me. That's ridiculous. Christ came to pay the cost for sinners, for wicked sinners. We certainly are doing in coming to you, the very call of the gospel that goes out to all who will come. I pray that we'll see that. But the devil is always there with his lies, suggesting that, no, God wouldn't want you. No, the Christian life, you don't want the Christian life. That's too hard. I cannot think of anything harder than living the sinful life, the oppression of the evil. <clears throat> but to live the Christian life and to know joy in knowing Jesus, being, knowing that we're forgiven, and knowing that he has prepared for us a, in glory a place to live with him for all of eternity, this creator of the universe. Not judged in hell for eternity, but abiding in heaven with him for eternity. Help us to see that. Don't love an evil one to scare us with his lies. You will take us. You will inherit us. You will bring us into your family if we come savingly relying on Jesus. It isn't what we have done. You have done it all and we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.